Jesus. We want to extend uh, a very personal welcome to you. We are thrilled that you're here and that you chose to worship with us at this hour this morning. Um, there's a lot of things going on. I, I don't have time to name them all. I usually like to name some things, but uh, we're so busy this month that, that I don't have time for that. So pick up a family news on the way out because there's a lot of things in there that, that you're going to want to know about. Um, specifically in, in a couple of weeks is going to be Easter and we've got big things happening that Sunday. Of course, there'll be egg hunts after church. Of course, there'll be, uh, some, spe- we're going to have a, a breakfast that morning. Instead of children's classes, we are going to have a, a, uh, experiential walkthrough thing. It's mainly, uh, it, it's, well, it's geared at children, but it's for everybody. And uh, I hope if you're able that you can be here, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be something that hopefully points them towards Jesus and the resurrection because that's what we're here to do. So I'm excited about it. I hope you make plans to be here on Easter Sunday. And then uh, after that, we're going to give you resources so that you can start inviting people because immediately following Easter, we're going to wrap up Rediscovering Jesus on Easter and we'll start start a new series about relationships. And uh, this is going to be one of those open door events that I call them. Basically what this is is an easy opportunity for you to invite your friends and neighbors to church. Statistics show that most people who commit to a church home or who commit to Christ were invited personally by someone they knew. And so the greatest form of evangelism we have is not the annoying little yard signs that are on every street corner. You've seen them. But is you saying to your neighbor, hey, why don't you come to church with me this week? Um, So that's what we're going to do. Hopefully we'll give you some resources to get started on that. This morning, we want to really look at Jesus' message. And and to start that, we're going to be in John chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and be turning there. But the the John chapter 7 is set in in one of the feasts of the Jews. Now, few of the feasts of, of the Jews that were were part of the old covenant were as joyful as the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles. Uh, it's also called Sukkot. Um, this was one of the most joyous feasts that that the Jews participated in. Um, it, 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 fell, it, it fell late in the fall. Um, it was held at the end of the agricultural year when the, when the grapes and olives would be harvested in Israel. Um, and, and this was a time to thank God for, for the preceding year's provisions and to pray for a good rainy season that, that God would bless them. And on each day of the feast, of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a procession of priests. A a, a great line of priests would move from the temple and they would go to draw water at the pool of Siloam. They would draw the water and then they would take it back amidst great cheering. People would throw olive branches and and palm fronds on the ground. The the priests were returned to the temple where the water was taken in procession, and they would walk around the altar um, with the choir chanting Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm, and, and then the water would be poured out as a, as a libation at the morning sacrifice. And, and there would be a, a kind of all-night revelry, not, not, not debauchery or, or, or that kind of revelry, but, but just a joyous celebration 
that led up to the water libation. That, that the last day was such a big deal that the people were, were holding on to it so, so much because it was, it was such a joyous celebration in their culture. Um, one one uh, uh, rabbi writes, He that never has seen the joy of the Beth Heshubah, which is the, the water drawing, has never in his life seen true joy. That, that, was, that was what they were anticipating. And so that last day of the feast was, was a huge deal. The joy of the festival, the high point of the feast, the, the, the water libation on the seventh day of the festival. As the priest uh, proceeded around the altar, they didn't just walk around once, they would walk around seven times. And, and after they had walked around seven times, they would, they would carry the water. They would pour it out at the morning sacrifice. The crowd would chant and sing this messianic psalm, crying out to God to continue to bless them and to send His chosen one. And, and so on the seventh day of the feast, after they had walked around for the seventh time, at the great feast, the high point of the feast, when the attention of everyone there was on the high priest as he was about to pour out the water, Jesus stands up because he believes his time has come. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This was a disruption of one of the holiest days of the Jewish year. This was Jesus standing in the temple in the midst of the religious symbolism, in the midst of the priests and the teachers of the law, in the midst of all this, this uh, religion, Jesus standing up and, and confronting the control of the priests, the, the, the control over the religion of the people. Last time we were together, we talked about barriers. And this is Jesus once again addressing those barriers. Jesus once again confronting that religiousness, that, that, that this is not about creating things that keep people from God. And Jesus stands up in the midst of, of this festival... And, and as everyone is looking to the high priest, as everyone is looking to the, the, the religious leaders, and Jesus says, if you're thirsty, you don't go to the water libation, you come to me. This is revolutionary. We don't get that. We don't see Jesus as revolutionary a lot of times. We, we see him as the sweet, smiling man carrying the lamb in, in, in the painting. Or, or we see him uh, as the, the glowing individual praying before a rock. Or, or we see him in some of these paintings where he looks like Kenny Loggins. Or, or we, kids, your parents will explain to you later who that is. We, we don't see him, though, as a revolutionary. As one who turns the world upside down. But that's exactly what he does. Go back and reread, not right now, go back and reread the first five books of the Bible. It's not all floods and parted seas. In fact, 
most of it is taken up with rules. Entire books with nothing but laws. Nothing but rules. Laws about how you come to God. Laws about how God wants you to act. Laws about your worship. Laws about how you worship. Laws about where you worship. Laws about everything. The pillars in the temple, for example, in the tabernacle, had to be a certain number, made out of a certain thing, made to certain measurements by a certain family. That's just the pillars. Do you realize laws even legislating the underwear? I'm not making this up. The underwear that the priests were to wear when they were offering sacrifices. Rules, laws about how you could gather, about where you could gather, about every single minuscule detail. That's the first five books. Now, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not even getting close. For, for a thousand years, this is the only way people knew to approach God, was through the rules. There were no other options. If you wanted to be a follower of God, you followed the rules. All six or seven hundred of them. And in order to help you follow the rules, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law created more rules so that you would not even get close to breaking the real rules. So there were rules to keep you from getting close to the rules. So instead of six or seven hundred rules, you had maybe sixteen or seventeen hundred rules now to follow. So when Jesus comes, that's what people expect. They expect him to be another rabbi. Rabbis would come up and they would give what's called a midrash, which was a, a, a basically their take on the rules, on, on how you related to God. And they would tell you, this is how, these are my rules for how you follow God's rules. And, and that's what they expected from Jesus. Jesus was supposed to be another rabbi. They expect him to be like every other rabbi and to put his own touch on the rules, but, but really to, to center in on the rules, to help them to be more right, to help them to live more perfectly. They expect him to be a rabbi to teach good, moral people how to be better. Jesus would respond to these gathered crowds by sitting down and teaching them like most rabbis did. And he would teach them what the kingdom of God was going to look like. What the kingdom of God was. And as he taught... Everything changes. Jesus launches a revolution. In Matthew 5, we have the greatest block of recorded teaching by Jesus. The, the Sermon on the Mount, it's called. But this is the, the greatest block of teaching by Jesus recorded in Scripture. And, and we don't always like what that says. We try to find ways to explain it away. We try to find ways to go around it. But, but that's okay. Revolutions are like that. They don't always please everybody. I guarantee you everyone who heard the Sermon on the Mount was not pleased by it. I'm sure there were people stomping out uh, off the hill that day. It's harder to stomp on grass. But I I'm sure they, they managed to find a way to make their displeasure known. We, we like to clean up the Sermon on the Mount. We like to change the Beatitudes to the Be Happy Attitudes. We like to, to, to say, well, he said this, but what he really meant was this. In the Old Testament, God said, if you follow these hundreds of rules, 
then you will be blessed. You will be successful. You will be happy. You will have a long life. Your children will rise up and call you blessed. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, blessed are the poor. The poor in spirit. The mourners. The hungry and thirsty. The, the, those who are spoken evil against. Those who are persecuted. And they're going, wait a minute. This is not the rules. This is not what I've been taught my whole life. This is different. But if you follow through in that block of teaching, he goes on. In the Old Testament, they were told that the world is not a place for them. The world is something they should seclude themselves from. That their nation should not interact with any of the other nations around them. They should stay secluded, set apart from the world. They are to, to, to take their, their selves, their, their money, their time, their energy, seclude themselves from the world. Don't even marry outside your tribe. Take your light and, and bring it into the temple and offer it to God as a sacrifice. But Jesus says, you take your light and you go out there among them. That's revolutionary. That's different than everything the Jews had been taught their whole life. You take it out there. You be salt in the world. You change the world around you. Instead of hiding from it, instead of being afraid that it's going to contaminate you, you go out into it and change it. He's turning the world upside down. He's changing everything. Up until this point, they had known exactly what to expect. You know, like many of us, they had their church, and, and they liked their church just the way it was, and there was no reason to change it. It was fine because it was predictable, and each time they came, they knew exactly what to expect. I have people from time to time who tell me, I remember when you could go into any church of Christ anywhere, and they were all the same. And it's just not like that anymore. I'm not sure that was healthy because we're a church. We're not McDonald's. And, and if we're worshiping Jesus, I don't think predictable is something that Jesus ever was. You won't read anywhere in Scripture where the people say, oh, here comes Jesus. We know what he's going to say because it didn't work that way. We know what Jesus is going to do here. No, Jesus turned everything upside down. I'm, get, I'm wagering that there were many people who got up angry and stormed out of the Sermon on the Mount. Because throughout the rest of the sermon, you hear him say, you've heard it said, but I tell you. We don't re get that because we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that Jesus is God-made flesh dwelling among us. They believed it was a rabbi who was rewriting the Bible. If I stood up here this morning and told you, I know the Bible says this, but I really think you should do this, we wouldn't be real happy, would we? That's what they heard. When Jesus says, you've heard it said this way, but I tell you, He's rewriting Scripture. Who can do that? Who can rewrite the words of God? Well, only God, right? Who has the authority to do that? Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29. 
And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He was teaching them as one who had the authority to make these rules, to amend these rules, to change the words of God. No wonder they're astonished. No wonder there are even those who want to kill him. After he speaks at the great festival, he stands up and says, If you're thirsty, come to me and I'll give you something to drink. The priests send guards, you know, they, the temple guards. They send them to arrest him. Go arrest this man. They're so overwhelmed, though, the guards are, by his presence and by his authority that they can't even arrest him. They go to arrest him. John 7, verse 45. The officers then came back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Jesus was revolutionary in his teaching. His words were rewriting Scripture. He was changing their church. He was changing everything. And it was scary. He was also revolutionary in the company he kept. The Gospels mentioned eight occasions where Jesus accepts an invitation to dinner. Three of them, the wedding at Cana, the hospitality by Mary and Martha, and the meal in Emmaus after his resurrection were normal social occasions with friends or family. The other five, however, defied all the rules of social propriety. The Pharisees thought of the the table where you ate as a kind of little temple that when you ate with someone, you extended to them fellowship. When you extended fellowship to them, you were accepting them. You were accepting everything about them. So you see why they get upset when Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners by inviting them to the table by sharing a meal with them he's offering them religious fellowship these people who wouldn't even be allowed in the temple Jesus is sitting at the little temple with and sharing in worship once Jesus dined with a man named Simon the leper This disease carries a social stigma that that even today haunts those afflicted with it. Philip Yancey tells the story of an educated man in India, a, a refined man who came down with leprosy. And this man tells him the story of how he he sat in his car weeping outside of a church while his daughter got married. Because of his leprosy, he was not even allowed to go inside. That's today. In Palestine, there are laws that, that, that carry forth this stigma against leprosy. The afflicted must live outside the city walls. They can't come into contact with anyone. They have to in some way mark themselves or let it be known that they have this, this, uh, this disease. But Jesus ignores those rules. Jesus ignores that stigma and he shares a meal with this man. We don't get how big a deal that was. In a different scene with another Simon, a woman anoints Jesus with perfume. Now, this Simon is a Pharisee, and being the proper Pharisee, he recoils at this indiscretion. Jesus is not supposed to be doing that, and if he were a prophet, he would know that. 
Jesus' rebuke of Simon may help to explain why he prefers sinners over the religious. As the Pharisees pursue him, he receives another invitation to a meal, and this time he heals a man on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus draws a, a stinging contrast between these social climbing banquets of the Pharisees and God's banquet, which will be spread out for the poor, the cripple, the blind, the lame. That was the last meal that the Gospels record with prominent citizens. The last two meals, we know, took place in the home of tax collectors. In Jewish society, the word publican was, was synonymous with, with robber, with brigand, with reprobate. Um, their, their testimony wouldn't be even accepted in a court of law. They were, they were so rejected by society. And it's interesting that in both of these cases where Jesus sits at a table with publicans, He invites Himself. He invites Himself to both homes. And the crowd mutters disapproval and Jesus will say, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Or it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, you can see why the Jews preferred the repent or perish style of John the Baptist. That was much easier to digest. Jesus' message of grace was hard. It was hard to understand. The Jews in Jesus' day envisioned this ladder that was reaching up to heaven and, and moving higher and higher towards God, that there was a hierarchy. This was expressed in the, even in the architecture of the temple. And you would climb this ladder and get closer and closer to God. It was like a religious caste system. And, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law were the pro- protectors of that ladder. All their rules about washing hands, about ceremonial cleanliness, or it was about making themselves acceptable to God. And in the midst of this system steps Jesus. And he has no qualms about associating with children who you weren't supposed to associate with, with sinners, with Gentiles, with Samaritans, with lepers, with the deformed, with a hemorrhaging woman or a a lunatic or the demon-possessed. Levitical law specifically prohibits every single one of those actions. Levitical law sets a, a whole day of purification that you would have to do after you came into contact with a sick person or a demon-possessed person or an issue of blood or a dead body. Jesus doesn't do any of that. It's interesting, there's the concept of of contamination that you'll hear about where, uh, oh, it's basically like if if I offered you a glass of lemonade and told you that, there's a chance that there may have been urine in that glass at some point. Would you drink it? Because of the chance of contamination, right? Even if it's a slim chance. That's the way the Pharisees looked at the world. I can't come into contact with this because there's a chance that it might rub off on me. But Jesus worked the other way. When Jesus came into contact with something contaminated... It, they, left clean, left pure. They were changed forever because Jesus was dominant over any kind of contamination. 
Jesus moves the emphasis from God's holiness to God's mercy. Instead of a message of no undesirables are allowed, Jesus changed the message to in God's kingdom, there are no undesirables. See, Jesus didn't come merely to make good, moral people be better. He didn't come so that those who have it all together and follow the rules just right will find their right relationship with God blessed. Or that they will move higher up on some religious hierarchy or ladder. Jesus didn't come to make good people be better. Jesus came to make dead people alive. That's us. People who were dead in sin. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Colossians 2, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This morning, if you're here and you feel like you're dirty, you're undesirable, you don't fit in, that, that I don't have it all together like you church people, you're exactly the people that Jesus came for. That's all of us. There's none of us who are righteous enough, holy enough, good enough to stand before God. We're all dead in our trespasses. We're all dead in our sins. If you feel like you can never measure up, like you're never good enough, righteous enough, or holy enough, you're right. And that's why God came. That's why Jesus was made flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's why Jesus came to earth to start a revolution. A revolution of grace. This morning... That's the call. Join that revolution. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, quit trying to find somewhere else. Don't look for it in the world. Don't look for it in a bottle or a bedroom. Don't look for it on social media or on television. If you're thirsty, what you need is found in Him. If you're thirsty this morning, join the revolution. Come to Jesus. Let us help you. Come to Him right now while together we stand and sing. To the river I am going Bringing sins I cannot bear